Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these warm and expectant hearts of ours. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So since we had 469 people in worship last Sunday, the largest crowd since Easter and Palm Sunday, the largest crowd of the year except for Easter and Palm Sunday, I am assuming that all of you were here. (laughs) And you know that I wasn't. For the first time in my ministry at Westminster, and only the second time in 35 years, I was struck with a 24-hour virus on Saturday morning that led me to send out an SOS. Save our service. (laughs) It first went to Eileen Jinks, who agreed to read the homily I had prepared for for Mary Hooper's memorial service at Goodwin House on Saturday afternoon. And then it went to Casey and Patrick, who crafted a dialogue sermon that they shared in the midst of all 469 of you. I am grateful to Eileen and Casey and Patrick. As we are beginning preparations to celebrate our 75th anniversary as a congregation, we are therefore in a mode in which we are conscious of all matters historical. I suppose in future Westminster lore, the question will be, Were you there the Sunday the minister didn't show up? (laughs) That's how I will be remembered here. While you were receiving confirmands and witnessing a baptism and singing about and meditating on the Trinity, I was at home asleep. At 11.30 a.m., I awakened with a start and the sun was out and I thought, Oh my gosh, I've got to go to church. Then I remembered that I, in fact, was sick. And so I settled in for two days of something that I rarely do, which is watch television. And it turned out to be quite an interesting two days. I watched the Nats lose their third straight to the Reds, eight to two. I watched the Senate debate the USA Freedom Act. Wrangling over parliamentary procedure, Senate rules, and the larger tension between privacy and security in such an intense way that the law originally adopted after 9-11 expired, as you know, for nearly 48 hours. I watched speculation develop and then names emerge concerning past misconduct in an unexpected indictment that had been announced on Friday of a trusted and respected former Speaker of the House, a leader with with whom some of you have worked and interacted. I watched news accounts and public reactions to the release of the Vanity Fair cover featuring the personal transformation from Bruce to Caitlyn Jenner. A few days later, at the other end of the social, economic, and geographic scale, I followed reaction to the recent acknowledgement by one of the 19 Duggar children, now grown, that as a teenager he had engaged in inappropriate 
activity towards several of his sisters. Weaving in and out of these events all within these two days, and weaving in and out of these media moments, were pictures of the vice president and his family walking through that darkest of darkness in which a parent buries a child rather than the reverse. By Tuesday morning, I was glad to get away from the news, meet a church member for breakfast, resume my normal routine of leading this congregation. But as I walked to the office, the sermon title I had selected several months earlier forebodingly stared at me from the church sign. The pace of change. What a week, I thought, to have committed to preach about the pace of change. There are several lenses through which we can view the changes of the past few decades in our culture. The lens of what is private versus what is public, of what is personal versus what is political, the lens of freedom versus security, the lens of religion versus secularity. In a democratic society, we can even seek to view these changes not so much through the lens of either or, but both and, personal and public, freedom and security, religion and secularity. But the lens through which I want us to look today is the lens provided by the lectionary passage to which I had indeed committed several months ago and out of which the title, The Pace of Change, grows. Our passage arises out of that moment in Israel's history when the people of God, having been freed from slavery and having been led for the past 200 years by charismatic tribal leaders called judges, have grown weary of what they perceive to be their second-class status and the second-class status of such leadership. And they request that they can have a king so that they can, quote, be like other nations. When they present this request to Samuel, who is their leader and current judge, they clearly do not believe that moving to this new form of government is a major change. Why else would they present it to Samuel? But Samuel is displeased with their request, and he immediately takes the matter up with God. God is also displeased. But God says to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Listen to their voice. Only warn them. Warn them. And show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel warns the people in what's the longest part of the passage that I read. If you get a king, Samuel says, 
All he will do is draft your children for war and raise your taxes. You tell me the Bible isn't contemporary. (laughs) But the people refuse to be persuaded by Samuel. So God says, listen to their voice and set a king over them. Even though God does not think a king, monarchy is a good idea, even though Samuel does not think monarchy is a good idea, God gives Samuel the freedom to try to persuade the people otherwise. And when Samuel is unable to do so, God gives the people the freedom to have the monarchy they request. Their choice and God's acceding to it eventually leads to Saul and David and Solomon and centuries later to the birth of Christ. Looking at the story in this way, the lens through which I observe this story and about which I want to talk today is the lens of human freedom. What in theology we used to call free will. God gives the people of Israel enormous free will to determine how they will shape their lives on earth. How they will shape their lives as God's people. How they will be led. God's final words in this text. Listen to their voice and set a king over them. So what might this say to the changes around us that have come at a pace dizzying for some and long overdue for others? What wisdom can we glean from this moment in God's relationship with his people in the past for God's relationship to us in the present? The first bit of wisdom I take from this text is that very few choices before us are without dimensions that are less than what God intends or desires. For example, even though God and Samuel are initially opposed to a switch to monarchical rule, their opposition does not undo the reality that even in the best people God has raised up as leaders, During the period of judges, people like Gideon and Deborah and Samson, such leaders have been flawed themselves and have not been able to stop the people of Israel from their perpetual backsliding. Even Samuel himself had once tried to install his own two corrupt sons into a hereditary office that would ensure that Samuel's heirs would become leader by by inheritance rather than that God would choose the leader as had been the case to that point. In addition, once the monarchy is established, while to be sure it leads to several hundred years of the people of God gaining territory and influence throughout the ancient Near East, Every ruler, including Saul, David, and Solomon, 
will display significant flaws in leadership and character. And the people of Israel eventually will split into two kingdoms, will be overrun by the Babylonians, and will be carried off into exile. What that says to us is this. In the freedom that God gives us as individuals and as a society, there is no cure-all. There is no utopia. There is no historical path that is unmarked by weeds and brambles. Listen to their voice and set a king over them. The second piece of wisdom that I glean from this story is this. God gives us an enormous amount of freedom to determine not only what path we will take in history, but also which steps along that path are pragmatic and less than ideal, and which steps are based on principle alone. While clearly there are moral absolutes, that apply to every human being in every culture, in every time and place, the Ten Commandments of which are probably the best distillation as exists, there is enormous human freedom under God to determine among ourselves, as people of faith and as people who are part of the human community, what is right and what is wrong. What is a matter of individual choice and what is not? What is to be known and what is to remain private? Kafka once wrote, Humanity is a free and secure citizen of the world, fettered to a chain long enough to give him the freedom of all earthly space yet only so long that nothing can drag him past the frontiers of the world. But simultaneously, Kafka wrote, humanity is a free and secure citizen of heaven as well, fettered by a similarly designed heavenly chain. In Kafka's image, if we head for earth, our heavenly collar throttles us. And if we head for heaven, our earthly collar does the same. The Jewish scholar Aviva Zornberg says of Kafka's image, we cannot live comfortably in either heaven or earth while we are a free and secure citizen of both. Suspended between heaven and earth, almost as on a bungee cord, we human beings have enormous freedom as to how we are to craft our lives on this earth. Listen to their voice and set a king over them. The third piece of wisdom that I draw from this text is that it is precisely the exercise of that freedom that engages us in the church we call Presbyterian and in the nation whose form of government we call democracy 
and whose name we call America. Notice that at the end of our passage, even after God has said to Samuel to set a king over the people, Samuel does not act immediately. Rather, Samuel tells the people, each of you return home. The chapter ends on this note. Presumably for an unspecified period of time, the people return to their homes, and presumably Samuel returns to his. During this time, I hope that there is thought, prayer, study, conversation, reflection. Then in the next chapter, Saul is chosen to be king by God and Samuel anoints him. And a few chapters later, the people then join in and ratify that choice. The writer does not tell us how much time passes between the time Samuel tells people to go to their homes and the time God chooses Saul to be king. We are not privy to the pace of change. We are only privy in this story to its outcome. In the Presbyterian church in which we worship, thoughtful reflection and conversation with one another is one of our spiritual hallmarks. It might be the most spiritual hallmark that unites us, that holds us together. God alone is Lord of the conscience, we say. There are truths and forms with respect to which people of good character and principles may differ, we say. We think it the duty, we say, both of private Christians and societies, congregations, to exercise forbearance toward each other. In the democracy in which we live in this nation, thoughtful reflection and conversation is absolutely essential. Messy and elusive as it seems to be much of the time. On Friday before I became ill and heard most of the news that I've addressed in this sermon, a member of the church sent me an article by a political theorist locally, who some of you may know, named Peter Wainer. Of our politics and our democracy, Wainer writes, politics isn't and shouldn't be some kind of technical exercise. It is properly also an arena of moral judgment and of philosophical disagreement. But it is an area in which our views are tested in practice. And so we have to allow it to be a venue of learning from experience. For that to happen, he writes... We need to leave our intellectual cul-de-sacs from time to time and to allow 
at least an unlike-minded person to have standing in our lives and when necessary to challenge our interpretation of things. The article then quotes another writer. If you bring people together who disagree and they have a sense of friendship, family, something in common, an institution to preserve, they can challenge each other's reason. They can challenge each other's thinking. My friends, no matter what the pace of change in our society is today, it is the content of change that ultimately matters. As families, as a congregation, as citizens of the nation and ultimately of the world, it is in that space of freedom that God granted Samuel, the people of Israel. It is in that space of being fettered to heaven and to earth. It is in that space in which Samuel and the people retire to their homes for an unspecified period of time, of thought, and prayer, and learning. It is in that space that we must think, pray, talk, read, study, reflect, listen, then decide and act. It is called Presbyterianism. It is called democracy. Welcome to it. Amen.